Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. So welcome to another episode of the Phrenesis podcast. Uh, Brad Davis here. Will Lombardo. And today we are going to be talking about a really fascinating essay. This was um, my first time reading it uh, to prepare for this. Will, Will uh, introduced it to me. And it's uh, Walter Benjamin's Theses on the Philosophy of History. Want to tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So this piece is presented as a number of short statements or reflections on, uh, as the title indicates, the philosophy of history. And it sort of represents Benjamin's way of uh, reconciling his uh, named commitments to Marxist historical materialism with uh, what had happened in the 20th century to that point, which was for him, uh, World War One and the fall of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazism, uh, and, and so what we what we're seeing here is a, him you know, working through what he's seen with his prior philosophical commitments, and uh, you know Benjamin is probably the foremost uh, intellectual influence on the Frankfurt School, uh, and so this is a. Uh, his, uh, his dealing with uh, the Marxist philosophy of history kind of represents a turning point in intellectual history uh, in, in terms of <clears throat> where Marxism went uh, you know, in the, the early mid 20th century, how it, how it, what it retained, uh, but what commitments it changed in response to the, horrors that befell Europe over the first you know, four, uh, four and a half decades. And, uh, and can you tell us a little bit about the Frankfurt School? Uh, what, what does that entail? What's, what's going sure. on there? Uh, so the, the Frankfurt School was uh, uh, named after, it's called the Institute for Social Research at the University of Frankfurt on Main. Uh, that was a, um, you know, a, a collection of intellectuals uh, the most prominent at the beginning were Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, and Rue Marcuse, uh, who founded uh, and formulated what we think of as critical theory today. Uh, so it's really a synthesis of uh, Marxism and Freudian psychoanalysis at the beginning. Um, and you know what they what they they want to find out is uh, how to um, diagnose the circumstances people find themselves in uh, and the ways that certain social structures can be oppressive, uh, but then to to uh, formulate a way out of that. Um, and and so they you receive you see them. Uh, retain some of the earlier elements of Marxism, like the economics uh, and things like that, but they really toss out um, Marxist philosophy of history largely. So it's this really transformed kind of pseudo-Marxism uh, that, I mean, since then has you know, transformed into something very and different. Often uh, derisively called cultural Marxism or things of that sort is kind of right, which is a bastardization of this approach right right it's a it's a nonsense term there's no such thing as cultural marxism but but the, the idea is that you know the uh critical theory is it's not just a um, political enterprise but it's kind of become pervasive in literature departments and uh also you know things like uh gender and ethnic studies okay um and uh because you can use, and it's it's really more of an approach than a, a you know a, a bullet point of doctrines, and so you can use that uh, approach in all of these different disciplines, uh, and it's the 
you know, the, the kind of vestigial Marxism left over in it that where you get the you know, nonsense term cultural Marxism. Okay, okay. And so, uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, born at the tail end of the 19th century uh, in Germany from in a Jewish family, uh, studying at the University of Freiburg and then uh, University of Berlin, he... Some of his early work seems like it was translating and uh, discussing the poet uh, Charles Baudelaire, who you wrote an interesting short little uh, piece on for, for a thwart the other day. Could you maybe tell us how, how that influences him or, or where that, what that background means for his work? So one of the things that uh, interests Benjamin the most is time uh, and how time is experienced uh and um and how we uh you know our experience of time is something non-linear uh that we can uh you know uh, transport ourselves to the past as it were project ourselves into the future uh that things like uh, memory and hopeful expectation um you know affect how we perceive time and you take some of this from heidegger as well uh, but he finds these themes running through a lot of the uh, artists of the 19th century, uh, Baudelaire and Proust foremost among them. Um, and so a lot of what he sees in the uh, poetry of Baudelaire is he, he uh, con- you know, constructs these, uh, you know, these, these lines that are meant to uh, elicit a, kind of involuntary response to uh, kind of transport you into the past to some memory you might have had. Uh, and that one of the explicit themes of uh, Proust's novel, uh, you know, In Search of Lost Time, uh, it, it is how to kind of bring the past back to life and give it meaning. Um, and then Benjamin takes a philosophical interest in this as well, because you know, it, uh, it, it coincides with the, um, you know, there's a, Marxists have a commitment to history and time of a certain kind. Um, and I think he sees this disconnect between time as we experience it and time uh, and history as, you know, doctrinaire Marxism would have it. Right on. And then one more thing I think is important to mention up front is a lot of his work is deeply influenced by mystical Jewish traditions, uh, particularly Kabbalah. And neither of us are experts on that. Um, and you know, we can certainly point out where it seems to come in, but the, the Kabbalistic tradition is a very interesting nuanced one that um uh, it, it's well worth re- researching and reading on benjamin and uh just the, this mystical aspect to him we will try and touch on it but do know that is a deep part part of this work all that being said if it's all right by you i i want to read the first of his theses uh there's 18 in total. It's a a pretty short collection, but a very dense one. And the first one is, is fascinating. He writes, The story is told of an automaton constructed in such a way that it could play a winning game of chess, answering each move of an opponent with a counter move. A puppet in Turkish attire and with a hookah in its mouth sat before a chessboard placed on a large table. A system of mirrors created the illusion that this table was transparent from all sides. Actually, a little hunchback, who was an expert chess player, sat inside and guided the puppet's hand by means of string. One can imagine a philosophical counterpart to this device. The puppet, called historical materialism, is to win all the time. It can easily be a match for anyone if it enlists the services of theology, which today, as we know, is wizened and has to keep out of sight. <laughs> what a way to start off 
uh, any sort of essay. Um, man, can you unpack that a little for us, Will? What's going on there? Sure. I think we have to you know, approach that by uh, you know, situating Benjamin uh, you know, at the end of uh, intellectual history before him. Uh, which is that the, the 19th century was the century of extremely hopeful optimism uh, about history in some sense. Uh, and you, you get the, the first very explicit formulation of that in Hegel, although there are inklings of it the century prior in uh, the Montesquieu and Kant uh, that, you know, uh, For Montesquieu, you know, uh, commerce will, you know, progress and gradually pacify the world, and eventually you'll, uh, you know, end up in, you know, kind of an ideal world of, you know, peaceful exchange when there's, you know, no wars and everyone's living in a degree of material comfort. But he doesn't attach any kind of metaphysical superstructure for that. He just thinks that the the workings out of commerce um, will bring that, uh, and. So Hegel is kind of the first person in the 19th century to um, uh, formulate a systematic philosophy of history. Uh, He uh, names a a mechanism uh, by which it moves, um, a destination towards which it tends, uh, and, you know, attempts to explain uh, events in history, uh, changes in eras, by this method, um, and so Hegel dies, and uh, his his followers split off into uh, right and left Hegelianism. Uh, you know, the the right uh, is pretty conservative, and that they think that what Hegel wanted was embodied in the current Prussian state. Uh, nothing more needed to be done. The left was more revolutionary and thought much more needed to be done uh, to uh, bring about absolute freedom, which Hegel identified as the endpoint of all history. Uh, and I don't know about the extreme left, but the most prominent member of left, the left Hegelians was Marx, uh, whose one of his earliest works was uh, critiquing uh, Hegel's philosophy of right as you know, uh, the, the structure of the state that Hegel envisions is insufficient to bring about the freedom he wants. But Marx still retains kind of a Hegelian notion of history. Uh, but where Hegel sees history as a progression of spirit, uh, which is, um, you know, very clearly metaphysical, Marx sees the motive force of history as changing relations of production. And that that tend toward, you know, Marx identifies the time he's living in or maybe soon after him as the time when, uh, you know, capitalism has developed to the point that um, it's both at its highest level of exploitation uh, but also it's most successful as far as creating material wealth and that you know, eventually it will tip, uh, the tip being a revolution from the proletariat working class uh, to progress into the Marxist end of history, which is you know, the communist paradise, the workers' paradise. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. And the state, and- the state withers away. Um, and he, you know, he says something like, "You can be a fisherman in the morning, a you know, farmer in the afternoon, and a philosopher at night, or, or something, you know, something like that." Um, and that's the that's the that's what um, uh, that's what Benjamin refers to as historical materialism, or he's at least referring to um, you know what how uh, you know Engels kind of distributed Marxist. Uh, philosophy of history after and that's what he inherits and that's what he at least uh, claims to be dedicated to but is having a hard time being dedicated to yeah and he's drawing out 
from both Hegel and Marx that they have theological elements to them and that perhaps at their very core are theological claims um, that both of them are seeking sort of the messianic coming uh, a, a point where history reaches its end and there is paradise on earth now the paradise from a Christian sense versus a Jewish sense versus a hard Marxist sense is all very different imaginings of what exactly that would be. But I mean, talking about how all of these are messianic in their goals and have those theological elements to it. Right. And I think we need to clarify that a little because Benjamin's is also messianic. Uh, and so... Uh, Hegel, on one hand, pretty explicitly uh, in his uh, lectures on the philosophy of history, uh, tells his audience, just imagine the movement of spirit through history that I'm talking about as providence. That's the closest analog you know, he can think of to uh, make it make sense to people. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a live debate whether uh, you know, Hegel had religious commitments to something transcendent, um, and I don't want to uh, take a stand on that, but Marx removes the metaphysics from it. So for, for Marx, it's all, it's all material, and, um, and it does tend toward what you said, this, uh, this paradise, this Perugia, uh, but it's inevitable. Marx thinks it's just kind of uh, going to happen uh, through the normal course of history. And uh, so, you know, while that's a theological expectation or at least models itself after theology, there's no reference to God in it. Uh, but it may require just as much faith as, as that. It's a different from the messianic uh, revolution that Benjamin has in mind. Yeah, and it seems uh, sort of within his lifetime, history was appearing to end in a couple different ways. You were discussing the war and the great um, destruction that were brought about by the First World War and then subsequently the Second. Socialism was dying out in Germany and didn't seem to have the allure or promise that it once had. Marx was no longer seemed ser- no longer seemed serious in the ways you were discussing earlier about um, serious limits to his thought. You have the fall of the Weimar, and then suddenly the expansion of of Nazism it is a dark period, and Benjamin is trying to understand how fascism is spreading. What the way in which fascism interacts with history and how a Marxist history might be able to combat or fix that. And there's sort of two ways he discusses history as advancing. And he talks about the normal approach being sort of linear, particularly Marxist materialistic history is linear in the sense of an ever-going march towards justice for workers or in a Whiggish sort of history, a, a movement towards liberty. These different views that over time, almost despite what one might do to try and speed it up or stop it, history is going towards a direction of a freedom of some sort. And it's a process that just has to be allowed to go on. Right. He says that... No, he... Oh, go ahead, sorry. He has serious reservations about this, particularly history was supposedly advancing and then Nazism rises, and that seems to go against very much the linearity of history. And he's afraid that if people consider history to be linear and immovable, they will not be pushed towards any action that they will not be pushed to try and advance history or advance 
the rights of workers or anyone else. He's afraid that linear history produces a sense of apathy where you are excited to talk about it in the theoretical realm, but there is no room for praxis, no room to act upon your historical beliefs. Right. He says that uh, progress relies on a notion of empty, homogeneous time. And the, uh, you know, the, the idea of that is there's no ontological difference between past, present, and future. The only thing that distinguishes them is the transitivity of events. So, you know, uh, A happens before B, B happens before C, therefore A happens before C. Uh, you know, that's, that's the idea of time that's, he thinks, indispensable uh, to progress. Now, I mean, it's interesting because there, there's a way that you can have a philosophy of history that believes in sort of an absolute progress that can uh, uh, account for fascism. Um, Hegel called, you know, all of the, he, he anticipated um, the objection to, you know, what was his optimistic view of history, basically, uh, that, you know, look at all of this bloodshed. Um, you know, throughout the entirety of, you know, what, what he was looking at was basically like Greek through the French Revolution, Greece through the French Revolution. Uh, you know, look at all this bloodshed, look at all this violence, look at all this suffering. And, you know, you're going to say this was all necessary to advance to the point, you know, that we have here. And, you know, he could say, yes, he calls uh, history a slaughter bench, um, but that everything was basically necessary to, you know, arrive at this point. Um, and there, and that gives the past meaning. It vindicates the past in some sense, which is of course, little consolation to the victims, uh, who at this point are long dead, but, but, you know, it's a way of, of giving meaning to the past, but that's not really what, oh, go ahead. He's not just concerned that there is per se fascism and violence in the world and within history there's also fears that fascism captures history and tries to distort it and make its own and so uh that fascism is able to rewrite the history of the past and reassemble it in such a way to change the history of the future or to plot a new course forward that isn't the progress of linear historicism. It, it would be not just revisionist history, but right. If you, so if I, I mean, we have to remind ourselves again that where he's starting from is a Marxist conception of history. Uh, and and that it seemed in Germany, especially at the end of the First World War, that the country was primed for a working class revolution and to become a socialist country. It happened in the Soviet Union you know, four years before uh, the Socialist Party was quashed in Germany. Um, so, you know, you're you're this close it, it seems like Marxist history is going to play out and then uh, you know 13 years later uh, you know basically you have the Nazi party take power uh, and it's like if you got this close and then backtracked so far maybe your 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 faith in the progress, just by itself was misplaced. Yeah. If I may read again, uh, thesis number eight, it's a really good one. He says, the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. We must attain to a conception of history that is in keeping with this insight. Then we shall clearly realize that it is our task to bring about a real state of emergency 
and this will improve our position in the struggle against fascism. One reason why fascism has a chance is that in the name of progress, its opponents treat it as a historical norm. Right, the, 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 the Nazis had a philosophy of history in a sense, too, which was sort of recapturing something that was lost. He starts talking about, in Thesis 9, there's this painting that represents to him history. And he starts off with a Gerhard Scholem uh, quote, My wing is ready for flight. I would like to turn back. If I stayed timeless time, I would have little luck. And he, he thinks this painting by uh, Klee, uh, Angelus Novus, sorry for my terrible Latin, um, represents history. And it's a really haunting image. I encourage you to pull it up. What did you think when you first saw this, Will? Or you had an expectation of what you thought the image would be, right? Right. It's it's far more haunting than what you'd expect. I expected some kind of neoclassical painting, and it's very far from that. But the, you know, the idea of, you know, looking back toward wreckage piling up behind you, again, reminds me of what Hegel said about the slaughter, the slaughter bench of history. Uh, you know, that there are all these necessary deaths, but that there, there's some way that, you know, we talked, uh, then, you know, Benjamin talks about the angel kind of being born you know, with the current toward the future, um, that, you know, that there's there's some way that those things can't be fully vindicated, uh, which is, I guess, you know, partly the tragedy of, of history. Yeah, it really is such a haunting image. Um, and, you know, he, he talks about, I think, so we, we mentioned at the very beginning that uh, memory is important for him. And although uh, you know, a Marxist uh, couldn't admit this uh, for himself, um, or you know, at least if he were being scientific, he couldn't. He talks about how uh, you know, part of you know, the motivation for um, you know, revolution uh, is kind of you know to, to avenge the oppressed who would never get to see it. Uh, yeah. To give meaning to their suffering, uh, which is really interesting, uh, and and I think that's part of the way that he thinks we can't operate or we don't operate uh, with this assumption of empty, homogeneous time. And that's particularly a problem he sees for social democrats and lesser liberals who aren't willing to fight for history or with history on behalf of the oppressed. Um, man, there's just so many great lines in here. The The Tenth Thesis has a really interesting bit on monasticism. Uh, that's worth going into. But, but in the Twelfth Thesis, just as you were saying, he talks about not man or men, but the struggling oppressed class itself is the depository of historical knowledge. It's all the memories, and particularly the memories of those who have been abused by history that make up history, that are important for history, that is a history that needs to be captured. And that's sort of the locus of, uh, or needs to be the locus of political action. Um, in a way that he seems to think Marx alludes to, but was insufficient, not revolutionary enough in just how important history is. Right. So in a sense, the proletariat has a privileged uh, epistemic uh, condition or epistemic uh, status in Marxism, uh, you know, and that they're the only ones who can see capitalism for what it truly is is and thus feel impelled to topple it uh and you know 
Benjamin sees this in a certain way, uh, in, a, in the same way, but that there's all of this built-up memory in there also. But he further complicates it because he says earlier that you have to, you know, admit to yourself that the, you know, ruling, you know, history has to be, to some extent, the story of the victors because, you know, the victors are, uh, you know, the ones who control the information that gets handed down uh, and, you know, being a, uh, a faithful Marxist, uh, you know, that the, the people who own the means of production are the ones who determine the, you know, the intellectual trends of the period. Uh, and so, you know, to what extent are you remembering faithfully, you know, your oppressed ancestors and to what extent are you remembering them through a lens that, you know, is, you know, the, the, uh, the lens of your oppressors or the, the lens of, you know, uh, aggregated series of oppressors that kind of, you know, mediates your ability to remember them. And I think that's, that's a complication he sees in this. Yeah. And his solution to this, it seems to be lying out that you can't just critique the object of progress. You need to critique the progression itself and how it occurs. And it seems like he seeks to develop a history that is neither the linear progressive narrative nor the nonlinear. And it is sort of a linearity punctuated by the coming of the Messiah at an unknown time. Is that right or am I missing part of that? Well, I think that's, I think that's right. I, maybe not, maybe not punctuated uh, by, because I don't really, I don't really know whether he thinks history uh, has an end in that sense, but you know, what, what he really sees is, um, you know, the, the coming of the Messiah is for him analogous to the revolution. Uh, and, and that, um, but that the the revolution, instead of coming from outside of history into history to save us, comes from within history and tears through its fabric or kind of detonates history as such. Yeah, yeah. There's a great line in Thesis 14. Uh, Thus to Robespierre, ancient Rome was a past charged with the time of the now, which he blasted out of the continuum of history. The French Revolution viewed itself as Rome incarnate, like very much pulling out of history what you need to rebuild it. Right. And you can't think of history linearly uh, if you do that and 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 but but, you know, he also thinks that that's how revolutions operate. Uh, you know, they, they kind of gather to themselves all of this, this memory that, you know, it, it, you know, in some sense, there's the, um, you know, the, the you know, pent up frustration of the, the fourth estate. Uh, and, but, um, you know, and their, their centuries oppressed ancestors, you know, but also there's this like deep cultural memory that he mentions goes back to the Roman Republic and uh, you know, it takes mustering all of this up uh, to, you know, tear through history, you know, which is kind of to disrupt the way that it's tending. And that's yeah. how he thinks of a revolution. And it's weird how atemporal this is the revolutionary moment simultaneously is rewriting all the history of the past and making Rome adjacent to the French revolution while simultaneously rewriting all the calendars of future, changing the nature of time itself, not just resetting the clock, but creating an entire new 
understanding of how time pro- progresses and that, right. and that's I think wild that, and that's really important because uh you know you can you can trace you know changes in you know defining changes in epics by how they change the calendar um so the you know the roman calendar was uh changed by the gregorian calendar um which hasn't changed that much but in the middle of eight in the middle ages um you know they had different notions of time some of which were cyclical and you know all of which were uh you know related to divine time and the revolutionary calendar in france right persists right and 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 even between uh even between you know the middle ages and the, the french revolution you know, the understanding of time changed drastically with, uh, you know, like Newton Uh, and, and that, um, you know, a a way of changing or way of thinking of revolutions almost. And in some sense, you know, these were revolutions, maybe not in the model of the French revolution, uh, but, you know, in terms of how much they uprooted, that's why they call it the scientific revolution you know just how much it uprooted what preceded it uh you know what followed was a very different sense of time so maybe we're going to recalibrate bc to before coronavirus right maybe (laughs) but (laughs) more more seriously and something i think is absolutely fascinating um you know obviously our calendar is the birth of Christ and death is what marks it. The Islamic calendar is distinct and runs on a lunar cycle instead of uh, our, our month-based cycle. Or months are calibrated differently based on a lunar cycle. And the years then end up being a different length of time than the years we use. It continues to fascinate me that Muslims in the West, when referring to dates, will use the typical 1996 AD, and then in an Islamic text right afterwards, put the year it's been since the Hijra right after it. And and so keeping sort of two senses of time in mind, two calendars to keep track of, for the religious community has to be a really interesting, I mean, a, a way to be in the world, but not with it. They, they keep track of their time, both the start and, and the and what will be the judgment, the, the end of days, in an entirely different way alongside the rest of society. And that's fascinating. Right, and I think that's not that different from the Catholic liturgical calendar, not that the, uh, the dates are measured differently, but that the same events recur. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the sense that there's supposed to be a real presence there, not just that mm-hmm. we remember them fondly, but that there's yeah. a participation that makes them very real. Uh, I'm, I'm drawing a lot on uh, my piece that will hopefully be out next week here, but that, um, you know, that there, and that's, and that's in a sense, I think Benjamin would think this also truer to how we experience time than the time he sees as empty and homogeneous, which in a way uh, is, um, and it's funny that Marxism, uh, I think he thinks requires this in its doctrinaire form uh, because it requires a notion of progress. But how much uh, capitalism is benefited by and reinforces seeing time as empty and homogeneous, uh, the other, the regimentation that's required of labor um, and 
and you know commerce generally tends to reinforce these assumptions uh it, before we go on too much further i just want to underscore that it is particularly interesting you're discussing the roman catholic liturgical calendar uh, the Vatican II reforms that, that occurred in the 1960s, one of the key elements of that, and in trying to modernize isn't quite the right word, but the reforms of the church central changes was the development of a new calendar that that uh, follows the liturgical year separately. And, and so the way... I mean, the way we discuss time like that really has an impact on religious worship and the way we conceptualize things. It, it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to your essay quite a bit. Thank you. Well, and I think, you know, it's an interesting thing that, you know, last week we discussed, uh, you know, Strauss's essay on why we remain Jews. And one of the, one of the, the things uh, he, he says is that it's very difficult for, uh, modern Jews to access the revelation that their uh, ancestors experienced before them. Um, and, you know, there's a similar um, problem in, uh, not problem, oh, sure, problem in Christianity, you know, where at least by earthly time, we are 2,000-ish years removed from, um, you know, the most consequential events in, you know, in history. Uh, and that, you know, one way of, um, you know, one way of maintaining closeness to that is through this kind of cyclical calendar where you participate in them, you know, in a way that they're real and that that's how you can maintain access to something that, you know, at least measured by linear empty time happened a very, very long time ago. Uh, you know, and it's a way of spurring remembrance um, in the way that Proust and Baudelaire, you know, think of it, which is you remember it as if you're re-experiencing it, not just, you know, reading about it uh, and, you know, not participating in it in any way. Yeah. So... This conversation came up somewhat organically, but the next thing I wanted to hit on was sort of the, I'm not sure if it's conflict, tension between theology and philosophy in this work and Benjamin's thought, and what the difference is between theology and philosophy or theology and history, perhaps. Um, right. Well, I think uh, the... the first thing that'll be helpful for this is uh, to distinguish between t uh, types of historicism or types of philosophy of history, because there's two. Uh, like, to make it really simple, there's two. And um, one of them is, I think when you hear people rail against historicism, this is what they have in mind, uh, you know, which is the complete and utter historical relativity of all values, um, which is that, uh, you know, each and every, uh, just us, for example, you know, each and everything we think is good or that we value um, is, you know, completely created by the contingent historical circumstances we follow in, we fall in. And if those circumstances were to change, we wouldn't value any of the same things. Um, now that's a really reductive version, and you know there are there are very sophisticated ways of squaring, um, you know, the kind of uh, historical mediation of value with transcendental truth. And I think the most uh, successful, you know, philosophers of the twentieth century and today. Uh, like have understood that. Um, but then there's the other version, which is the teleological version of historicism, which is that all of history is tending to uh, um, an end point, normally a desirable end point, but there are 
philosophies of history that everything's degenerating, I guess, these kind of neo-reactionary, uh, you know, things that we we fell off at some point and it's irretrievable. But I think this latter teleological history is the one that is hardest to square with a theological conception of history. Well, isn't the Christian view of history a a decline? Since the garden, it has been going down. At some point, there will be there will be paradise. But up until that, it's a general decline. No. I mean, aside from that, you're, uh, you know, alighting over the, you know, very <laughs> consequential redemption of the, you know, the passion and the resurrection. I, I'm sorry. Yes. And, and but, so, so, sure, you can see it as a decline since then. From that moment as well, too, though, isn't it a decline since? No, I don't think so. I think it's it's more, you know, static, awaiting. A um, but you know, a, a decline measured against which standards? Um, and yeah, I think that you know, part of the Christian conception of history uh, is that you know where we will be a hundred years from now or five hundred years from now is you know unascertainable. Not that nothing can be done to affect it, uh, but but that. Or, you know, make scientific predictions about it, uh, but that there's no key to understanding the course of human history, because the most consequential events are, you know, of divine history that come crashing to meet human history, and that you know that's that's a mystery that we can't necessarily understand, uh, and so you know we're. we're you mentioned the, um, you know, the, the second coming. That's, you know, something you await, but it's not something you can predict. Uh, and if it's, if it's not something you predict and you have to hold that history will end that way, then you can't predict a general pattern of the future of history because for all you know, it could end tomorrow. And, uh, and so, you know, in, in some sense, this um, this way of uh, ascertaining the meaning of universal history, which is you know the entirety of human history from its beginning, not just until now but until its end, uh, is impossible. And I think that sits very. And I, and I think that's impossible if you take a theological standpoint. Benjamin was a very singular influential thinker whose life tragically ended much too soon as he was trying to escape Germany to make it to the United States to teach at, I believe, NYU. Uh, at he, Columbia. At Columbia. So when so the, the Frankfurt School was primarily... Uh, German Jews who fled, uh, uh, you know, when the Nazis took power, and Colombia agreed to house the Frankfurt School, um, and so Adorno, Marcuse, and Horkheimer all made it out of. Uh, well, Adorno went to Cambridge first, but uh, you know, all made it from Europe to New York City, uh, and the institute survived there, and they had a bedroom prepared for uh, Benjamin when he made it from Europe to New York City. Um, and, but like you said, while waiting to uh, escape Europe, he, the prevailing theory is uh, killed himself uh, by a morphine overdose. Yeah. As he was trying to cross over in Spain, I think, or maybe he had already been in Spain, but he was right. en route to the U.S., and fearful that he was about to be captured um, and didn't want to be captured by the Nazis. I think he had a sibling that was and, and who died in, in the concentration camps. Um, a family member of his by, by marriage, Hannah Arendt, uh, 
had previously escaped and was in New York and he was going to join her as well. It it is really incredible to try and imagine what what other work he would have done had he survived. Right, because so we have all of these reflections about how can we still be optimistic about history or you know how can you know, you know, for him, how can the proletarian revolution happen? And he, I assume, didn't know the full extent of what the Holocaust would turn out to be yet. Uh, Because he died in 1941. um, And the mass killings at the concentration camps that, you know, we recognize as... um, you know that sorry and the you know the 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 mass killings that we kind of understand as you know the 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 worst part of the holocaust when the most people were killed hadn't happened yet that wouldn't that wouldn't happen until a, a year or so later uh and and you know would he even have thought that optimism was possible after hearing about that and we talked last week about how you know the crisis of of faith in anything that would result after experiencing that and we talked about in the 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 context of judaism uh and and benjamin was certainly uh was certainly jewish um but also the kind of faith that you need to sustain a belief in something like marxist historical materialism and how could you ever possibly have faith in something like that after uh, you know witnessing what the survivors of the Holocaust witnessed, and you know I think the break between uh, Marxism, you know, from Marx until the nineteen twenties, and then you know Benjamin is that transitional figure, where after him the the members of the Frankfurt School were not really revolutionaries. Um, they didn't have that kind of optimism of uh, immediate, massive social change, uh, and you know that you know in some sense turned more into incrementalists than the original Marxists were. And it's also worth mentioning that uh, Benjamin was friends with Leo Strauss, who we discussed last week, and and part of Strauss's reflections on faith were absolutely with the loss of friends like Benjamin on his mind, and how how can we deal with that? And and you're right, how, how, how the insights of the Holocaust would inform the, this concept of history would be really interesting, and in, in trying to, and no longer just the, the proletariat, but how history as represented by the oppressed Jews is understood and transformed in the revolutionary possibility of that. Right. And I think you see, um, you see thought, uh, you know, social thought like Marxism originally after the second world war and and the Holocaust um, and political thought generally kind of goes on the defensive. Uh, And, and I mean that in terms of, it a lot of what it a lot of what it was was devoted one to understanding what happened and how it could possibly happen but two you know thinking of ways to make sure it never happened again and in some ways you have the you know the revolutionary uh kind of offensive consciousness of you know, transforming society as drastically and as quickly as possible, replaced by, you know, maybe our sights and our goals should be set at just ensuring that this never happens again, which is a very understandable impulse, I think. I A quibble I'd like to make with that, though, is 
one of the last few theses he's talking about universal history and how how pointless it is to try and have an overly broad or overly descriptive history and it seems like as much as one could try and historicize genocide or and the holocaust was a very particular moment understood that could only be understood in a very particular way especially on behalf of the survivors and their memories trying to learn it might not be possible to learn too much from that case that could be used as a preventative measure but i think you can i i it, it the, the point of history seems to inspire revolution within a group and in a very narrow sense. Not that you can write a theory of history that'll help you change universal history or, or prevent tragedy. It's very particular. I, I think that a lot of how we understand the profession of history today is that uh, not that we can ascertain a trend to help us get somewhere, but that we can, and I hate using this phrase, but avoid the mistakes of the past. Um, and and I, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that um, that you know there's a um, right. You know, I, I understand that it was um, that that you know that happened in a uh, you know a, a set of historical circumstances but isn't wanting to prevent something like that that is you know so terrible maybe the maybe the chances of it ever happening again are low uh but that you know the value you get from preventing something like that is worth it uh in and of itself and um and you know, I was I was just trying to make a descriptive statement about what happened to revolutionary thought uh, after the Holocaust, more than a normative statement. But and I, but we don't have to, um, you know, re- reduce that merely, uh, you know, to fascism in Germany, because. Well, and I th- I think you're right. This obviously has been very influential to historians of the current era. That this does seem. Current academic history seems in some ways to very much have taken some of this to heart in the specificity of it and the particularity of it and trying to rewrite and uh, revolutionize history. I think that there might be, he might still have some hesitation that academic history is, is not active. It's not the revolutionary action he wants so much as, as it is comfy Marxist theory building. Um, but it, it's fascinating. Right. And there, there, and there's some, there's some extent of that. And, um, and I think that this defensive trend isn't, you know, it extends beyond more than just the Holocaust. So, you know, much of American history, you know, is, is, you know, devoted to how can we, overcome and correct, you know, the racial history of the United States, say. Uh, and, you know, if you take a broader view of, you know, the, the age of totalitarianism, that it wasn't just Nazi Germany that you see mass, you know, these large scale killings. It was the only country like that where you saw explicitly racialized killings, uh, which is, you know, uniquely bad um, in a way that just political, just mere political, you know, it was it was genocide where, uh, you know, aside from Ukraine and the Soviet Union, um, you know, a lot of that was widespread political killing. So I understand it was different, but at the same time, in the Soviet Union and in Mao's China, uh, you go through this era of uh, of history, you know, where millions and millions of people, uh, you know, are are killed for you know, what their murderers think are, you know, lofty principles or something. And I understand uh, and think that probably should uh, 
dampen revolutionary sentiment a little. Um, because in a lot of ways, you know, that was inspired and driven by revolutionary sentiment. Uh, and, and, and these things were so uniquely terrible in, you know, the history of the world that it, the defensive posture, you know, that theory and history take in response to them of just purely ensuring that they never happen again, uh, is, is understandable and worthwhile. Yeah. I, I would love to read someone writing about, um, this piece and like the 1619 project at New York times, it's been Mm -hmm. getting a lot of, um, discussion surrounding it. it i really enjoyed this essay thank you for introducing it to me of course i'm, I'm glad you did cool well we've got histories to go rewrite um or i guess there is one last statement i want to make about this and the ending of this is very interesting the ending of this essay is really interesting it seems to show sort of his tensions between historicism and theological understanding of history, or both the material and theological understandings of history. You really have to read through it. It's it's not too short, just a few pages, but a wonderful essay all in all. Thank you for joining us for the third episode of Phrenesis. We hope to have you back next week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, let us know. If you want to leave a review, We'd really appreciate that. Thank you.